Sometimes one man gives the whole tone to a whole century. It was not merely of his mathematics that he was thinking. It was the system and philosophy that Descartes derived from the application of mathematical reasoning to the mysteries of the world. A view espoused by Bernard de Boyer de Fontenelle, a French author who wrote of Descartes. Thematically, whether culture is absolute or not may be a perception that depends on context, annotation, and meaning. Yet the same can also be characterized as a decorative question and or expression which adds depth and interest to this intellectual discourse. The decorative statement question behaves like a theory formulated to explain, predict, and understand phenomena, and in this context to challenge and extend existing knowledge within the limits of critical bounding assumptions. However, the same is appetizing and captures at the same time the essence of human cultures since it is a fun and fascinating field of social sciences that offers tremendous insight into the dynamics of our increasingly global human culture. With all its complex issues and advantages of the four fields of anthropological study are namely cultural, biological, linguistic, and archaeological anthropologies, a view espoused by Amber M.V. Amber's assertion imputes the tone, the tenor, and backdrop for me to juxtapose, mitigate, and navigate the retrieving of relevant cultural data from the annals of history that corroborates that absolute cultural relativism which is also resident in many cultures. A case in point, evidence of cultural relativism can be seen within the presence of the Chinese culture and their process of feet binding. According to Mark Cartwright, the practice of binding feet may have started with the dancer Yanoang, who performed in the Tang Dynasty court, or more generally, the Turkic dancers who performed there during the 10th century CE. These dancers were known for their small feet and bow shoes which had upturned toes. The first mention in historical records dates to when the Tang court was at Nanking between 937 and 975 CE. During this dispensation, foot binding was a practice first carried out on young girls in Tang Dynasty, China, to restrict their normal growth and make their feet as small as possible. Considered an attractive quality, the effects of the process were painful and permanent. 
widely used as a method to distinguish girls of the upper class from everyone else, and later as a way for the lower classes to improve their social prospects. The practice of foot binding would continue right up to the early 20th century CE. Foot binding was to stop the growth of the foot and make them smaller. The process often began between four and seven years old. A 10-foot bandage would be wrapped around the foot, forcing the toes to go under the foot. It caused the big toe to be closer to the heel, causing the foot to bow. In China, small feet were seen as beautiful and a symbol of status. The women wanted their feet to be three-inch golden lotuses. It was also the only way to marry into money because men only wanted women with small feet. Even after this practice was banned in 1912, women still continued to do it. To Western cultures, the idea of feet binding might seem torturous, but for the Chinese culture, it was a symbol of beauty that has been ingrained in the culture for hundreds of years. The idea of beauty differs from culture to culture. In light of the aforesaid admission, a word of caution. There are two different categories of cultural relativism. There's absolute, which means everything that happens within a culture, must and should not be questioned by outsiders, whereas critical creates questions about cultural practices in terms of who is accepting them and why. Critical cultural relativism also recognizes power relationships. Now that I have established context so as not to conflate the issue, as an author, media arts specialist, and licensed cultural practitioner, I have decided to frame this intellectual conversation is culture absolute in ISBN 978-976-9651265. Since this appetizing intellectual discourse is aesthetically pleasing and was contextualized so as to keep everyone's focus on the frame matter at hand, I decided to execute it in a cultural context combined with the repository theory. This approach provides purpose to direct our attention back to the issue when a culture is absolute. The more that I deconstructed this topic in this space at different timelines which can handle dates literally to the beginning of time, I have unearthed diverse inaugurations. By the 22nd century BC, the ancient Sumerian ruler Ur-Namu had formulated the first law code, which consisted of cositic statements if then. Around 1760 BC, King Harambui further developed Babylonian law by codifying and inscribing it in stone. The construct absolute first introduced by George Wilhelm 
and Frederick Hegel. Culture was first used in this way by the pioneer English anthropologist Edward B. Taylor in his book, Primitive Culture, published in 1871. Although civilization is not something absolute, yet it is relative, and our ideas and conceptions are true only as far as our civilization goes. Daniel Tan asserts that currently law and culture mingle collectively to find out specifications that are to become followed by the inhabitants of the unique society. In this space, that is the reason why law regulates human conduct, whereas culture is an outcome of your aggregation of unregulated human habits. While seemingly different, these two parallels intersect typically. The law demands that it must be studied and practiced from the book, and there really should be no human element in passing judgments. This is how the story from the interaction concerning law and culture begins. International human rights law recognizes that few rights are absolute and reasonable limits. Many be placed on most rights and freedoms. There's also international culture that extends beyond national borders. It is shared by people across oceans and continents. Although not often explicitly mentioned, culture is always at the center of law and politics. Furthermore, it is certainly a study area which is steadily growing in international relations too, according to Stephen Sebrero. However, Joseph Jacob advanced the question, how has the international law come to integrate cultural rights and diversity within its corpus? From my field of view, although law regulates human conduct and culture is an outcome of your aggregation of unregulated human habits, yet law can't be manufactured mutually unique in the culture that it operates in. That is only because the law of the land is usually, to a sizable extent, defined by the sociocultural norms and morals. This is often the reason why the practice of law varies across nations. This partnership is more strengthened when the law gets to be interconnected with all facets of life, from religion to training, medication, horticulture, and other fields, according to Daniel Tan. In conclusion, whether culture is absolute or not, cultural relativism is displayed in many cultures. There is a distinction commonly made between absolute and relative human rights. Plausibly, the theory absolutism is making normative ethical decisions based on objective rules. It maintains that some things are always right and some things are always wrong. They are fixed for all time, places, and people. On the other hand, relativism says that nothing is intrinsically right or wrong, but focuses our attention on whether culture is absolute. Overall, all of the contextualized theories posited in this text focus our attention thematically on whether culture is absolute or not. 
maybe a perception that depends on context, irritation, and meaning. Yet the same was also characterized as a decorative question and or expression which added depth and interest to this intellectual discourse framed in 13 chapters in ISBN 978-976-965126. Five.